Question this morning, is God still at work? Is God, does God still care about our world? Does God still care about you? Does God still care about me? These, these are questions that I think a lot of us have been asking, especially a lot of people in our culture, in our world. I know I've been, I've been asking it. God, do you even care about what's going on? Do you even care about what's going on in our country? Do you care at all? If God does truly exist, then why do so many bad things happen in the world? Is often the time, often the question we hear, right? In the, in the questioning to the belief of God. So we're going to look at a couple here, uh, as we as, as Sienna just read, about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're going to take a look at this couple who are asking these same questions. Now, so last week we talked about how Jesus is for everyone. How Jesus is, is for, you know, he's pro-humanity, but he's also for you. He loves you. He desires good for you. He even called out his purpose in, in John 10, 10. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full, have it exceedingly greater than you could ever dare to ask or imagine. And so this morning, we're going to take a look that Everyone is also born to make much of Jesus. So Jesus is for everyone. And everyone that is born to make much of Jesus. Now the events that we just read and that we're going to look through this morning are real history. This isn't just some fairy tales and stories made up for, for the fun of it. These are actual stories. These are real people who lived in real time in a real world. And this morning, we're going to break down uh, the, these, this chapter into three, three things that we need to know about the king, about the priest, and about the angel. So we're going to take a look at each one of these things. So the first one, the king. We're going to look at king. What does it say? King Herod, right there in, in verse 5. Uh, verse 5 says, in the, king, in the days of King Herod of Judea. Now, it's a short little piece of our pie there, but that is a huge piece of text, huge piece of subtext. There's a lot, a lot to that scripture for the reader that was reading it when it was first written. That would bring to mind a certain kind of person. That would be like saying, in the days of Hitler. This is exactly what we're talking about. Because he, he, King Herod was crafty, he was capable, and he was cruel. As Alistair Begg would say, crafty, capable, and cruel. If you've ever listened to Alistair Begg, love it. Um, but he was a master builder. I mean, this guy, he was, he was crafty and capable. He, he was a master builder. He built four of these incredible wonders. The first thing is Caesarea, this huge Caesarea Maritima. So this was the northern coastal border, uh, this, this coast town, this port uh, up in northern Israel, the northern coast of Israel. It was incredible. Uh, re he also rebuilt the second temple that Jesus was, was walking into, just that Jesus was doing ministry in, that the church was born in, born and raised in, in the, in the second temple that Herod the Great built. He also built the incredible fortress of Masada. It's even a movie. It's where, in AD 70, it's where all the Jews fled from Jerusalem and went up into the, into the mountains of, by the, uh, by the Dead Sea, and this big flat you know, flat top mountain that he built his palace on and built this incredible 
uh, fortress on top of that served them. They, they, they survived there for about six months to a year, I believe, or even more. But then he also built uh, Herodian in, Judea, in, the, in the Judean hill country. He was a master builder, but he was also crafty and cruel. He was infamous, of course, that we know in our Bibles from the, from the book of Matthew, that he is famous, infamous for murdering every young boy younger than two years old because he was jealous. Because he was of the jealousy that he had because he heard that another king was rising up. The king of the Jews was born. So he wanted to wipe them out because he felt like he wanted to protect his legacy because he was arrogant and jealous. But that was just the beginning. He also had his wife murdered. He had his mother-in-law murdered. And not only that, but her three sons. And not only her three sons, but 12 of his own sons murdered, including his favorite, Aristobulus. Actually, it was, it was known of Herod the Great that it was far safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of Herod's sons. Still, in the midst of this great evil, God was answering the question, am I still good? Am I still here? In the midst of a tyrant leader, in the midst of a tyrant and evil king and a ruler, is God still there? In the midst of a culture where it was kill or be killed in a lot of, where, a lot of areas, in a lot of ways, God was saying, yes, I am still here. Yes, I am still at work. You know, Mary will later sing of this great, uh, this this uh, this great evil. I'm sorry, this this great uh, mercy, not evil. This great mercy from generation to generation. God's great mercy. You know, none of the works of Herod took God by surprise. God wasn't like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. God doesn't see our time that we're living in right now. God knows what's going on in 2021. He, he's not surprised. Like, oh, I didn't know that that was going to happen. Oh, I didn't know the Yellowstone was going to explode in 2021. Just kidding. After a year like 2020, it's kind of, you got to gotta see something at the end of the rainbow there. <laughs> Yay! And hey, guess what? We're so close, we'll be first in line at the pearly gates. All right. <laughs> Good news. There's a silver lining to all that, right? But how do I live under someone like that? How do we live in an evil generation? How do we live in evil days? How do we live under someone like that? When we're tempted to look to the king, to the ruler, and that's where our hope comes from, no matter who's in, in, the, in the White House, no matter, if we're, no matter who it is, if we look to the king, we're looking in the wrong direction. No matter if we're looking to the Senate or to the state, to the governors, to the mayors, we're looking in the wrong direction. God is still working in dark times. And they were living in dark times. For 400 years, there were no more prophets. There was no movement of, the, of God's Holy Spirit. There was no words from God himself. There were wicked rulers that came in and out of power. The Greeks came in and took over, and then we fought them back and created a nation, Israel. And then the Romans came in, and they are now in charge. 
evil, wicked rulers, and silence from God. Silence from God. But God was getting ready to turn on the lights. He said, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. This is what Jesus is, Jesus' birth. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. John wrote about this too, and he wrote, in him was life in Jesus. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. God was getting ready to, to flip on the lights for all to see that he was still here, that God is still working. And I love this, this the way you know, the movies are set up a lot of times, like specifically The Hobbit starts with this, this scene of just mass chaos and war in front of the, 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 in front of the, the mines of Moria against orcs and dwarves and fighting and everybody is just this mass chaos evil, people being beheaded and all sorts of, and killed and all sorts of stuff. And then you hear the you hear that that music and it pans across the world to this little little town, this little grass covered hills, these little hobbits sweeping their their the front of their houses, peace and tranquility. It's this contrast and that's kind of what, what's going on here. The days of King Herod of Judea. <laughs> there was a priest. So we shift over to the priest. We're going to shift over to the priest here. Zechariah, a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was, one of the, was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah from the from the, the hill country. Abijah, like what? What I kept looking at that. I was like, what in the world is that? Who's Abijah? And I just read it actually in our quiet time uh, through our, our chronological Bibles. Like, oh, there it is. There's Abijah. So he was one of the 24 elders, well, 24 divisions, as it says in, in Scripture. Uh, and he was number eight in, in this thing. And so like these thousands and thousands of Levitical priests were broken up uh, into 24 divisions, uh, Abijah being one of the 24. Uh, family heads from First Chronicles 24, uh, verse 10, and uh, and so it, it talks about about Zechariah and and Elizabeth here. And what does it say? Both were righteous, as it says in verse six. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to the commands and requirements of the Lord. They were both devout, a devout man and a devout woman, living a devout life. They were, they were devoted to, to God. They loved God. And this is this giving hope that, that there were not all these people that were just, just sinners that had wandered away from the faith. That this wasn't just some more, you know, superficial and dead religion, even to them at the time, even though like when Jesus came, he was constantly having to correct the Pharisees, constantly having to correct the scribes, constantly having to rebuke the Sadducees, because they were sad, you see. Hey, oh, I'm a dad. I have to do it, you know. But you know, we we kind of get this bad taste in our mouth about the Jewish religion during the time of Jesus. That it was just this like everyone was terrible. Everyone didn't you know couldn't serve the Lord. But these people were considered righteous before God. They were devout. They loved the Lord. 
They were genuine in heart and genuine in spirit. They loved God. And he was, he was up for, uh, for rotation. He said, these are ordinary people, faithfully worshiping the Lord, following the Lord's call to prayer and holy living. Now, can I just say this? Couples, couples whose center and unifying factor is not Christ are incapable of experiencing the blessings and the joy of a marriage like Zachariah and Elizabeth. I tell you what, the, this couple was happy. This couple was, was joyful. Even in the midst of, as we're going to see here in a minute, in a second, that Elizabeth was barren. And to them, during that time, it, that was a shame. It was a shameful thing to be a barren woman at that time. But even in the midst of this, there was still happiness because they served the Lord. And there's joy in serving the Lord together as a couple. And so we see this, this barren woman motif with Elizabeth. It says, uh, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. As it says in the old King James, uh, stricken in years. It was, they were afflicted with, with age, is what it says. Uh, so look, at, we can see this, this, uh, this motif, this, this barren woman motif kind of perpetuated throughout Scripture. Sarah and Abraham were barren. But then later on, like years later in their lives, uh, there was a special child born to them. His name was Isaac. And then later on, we see 1 Samuel 1. Samuel was born to, uh, out of, to a barren woman who, was, who could not bear children for years. And then finally, God opened up her womb and she bore Samuel, one of the greatest priests in all of Israel's history. And then we also see another, another instance in Samuel and his mother Hannah. I believe it's Hannah. Don't quote me on that. <clears throat> but uh, his mother Hannah was also barren. And, and, and years had gone by. And then she prayed and prayed and prayed. And all these children were devoted to the Lord. Samuel was devoted to the Lord. Isaac was devoted to the Lord. Samson was devoted to the Lord. And John, as we'll see here in a minute, will, it will be devoted to the Lord for God's service. Uh, it's interesting to see this this contrast. So if we're going to compare, you know, as you know, coming up, we're going to look at Mary coming up here in a little bit. It's it's interesting to see the, this this motif kind of continued. So we see Elizabeth who tried but could not bear a ch a child and become pregnant. Mary had not yet tried and became pregnant. So both of these women had miraculous children through miraculous means that were put on. Uh, were devoted for God's divine service. Um, and what does it say? What, what happened here? So let's look, let's continue on. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, so chosen by lot, um, there's a lot of priests and there's only one temple and there's only a, like a select positions to, to fulfill. And so um, they would, they would, each priest of these thousands and thousands of priests uh, went on duty one week, twice a year. So they were, they would come in from their town, from their, from, from their village and come into the temple and serve for one week, twice a year. And they would also cast lots, so like basically like what we would consider dice. They, would, they threw their dice, they threw their lot in. And, and if they were chosen, 
they got to go and burn incense before the Lord. Now, this is, this is significant. There was no other offering in the temple besides the high priest going in once a year to the Holy of Holies. Other than that, the, that the priesthood itself in general could partake of that was greater than the incense. Once selected, they could never, ever put their cast, you know, cast their, their lot in again. This was literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This was huge. This was ama an amazing opportunity. This would be like, oh my gosh, if I could go to Rome and spend a month in Rome just going around and just touring all the sites and learning all the history or going to Ephesus and touring you know, you know, Asia Minor where Paul went and did his, did his ministry or just spend a month in Jerusalem, you know, spend a month in Israel just traveling and, and seeing all of, the, all of what where Jesus went and the historical sites here and there. And it's all paid for. All my hotels are paid for. All my food is paid for. We even got like, you know, $5,000 worth of like spending money. That would be a once in a lifetime opportunity for my nerdiness to be fulfilled. It would be amazing. So you can, you can think about what would be a, life, a once in a lifetime opportunity for you. Imagine for you, what does that look like to have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? This is what we're talking about. This is what Zechariah is looking forward to. He says he's married to the daughter of a priest. Both of them are righteous in God's sight. And he went in. He went in alone into the incense altar inside the sanctuary, right outside the veil. This was as close as anyone could ever get to God's presence during those days. This was huge. And it was so impactful for his life. And this was right outside the veil of the Holy of Holies. And so we continue on. What happened next? At the hour of incense, the Holy Assembly of People was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. This is the common uh, instance uh, when someone meets an angel. They kind of get freaked out. They're like, Bleh! why? Because angels are powerful. They're not just like cute little things with angel with wing, with wings. Like, I'm a cherubim, you know. This was a powerful warrior of God standing next to the altar of incense. He, he probably pooped his pants. <laughs> he was like, oh my gosh. Like startled, possibly fell to the floor. It's startling because A, he was in there alone. And that would alone was scary, freak me out. Like all of a sudden someone's next to me, I'm like, ah. But to see who is next to you, and probably radiating God's glory. But what does he say? He says, he said what he says to him. But the angel said to him, Don't fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now let's let's take a little bit more of a look into this, this angel. This angel, as we, as we learn later on, I believe it's in verse uh, over here down in verse 19, is that we learn that this angel is Gabriel. This angel is one of the archangels of God, as it, as it says later. 
This is the same archangel that appears in Daniel's vision, in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. And it's interesting, to, to the two archangels uh, that, are, that are mentioned in Scripture, Gabriel and Michael. So Gabriel reveals knowledge. He reveals prophecy and words to, to God's prophets and to God's people, especially right now, right? As we're seeing with Zechariah, it's also the same angel that we're going to see later that appears to Mary. And back in Matthew, I believe it's the same angel that appeared to Matthew. So this angel reveals God's words to people, God's wisdom, God's truth to people. And Michael just blows stuff up. <laughs> Michael is the, is the angel that's known as the big, as the warrior that just like Sodom and Gomorrah and brings destruction and war and fire from heaven. Like Michael is, is a destructive, the destruction angel. And so both of these create fear. Every time in scripture, like even Daniel, when Daniel approached, was, 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 was appeared to by, um, by Gabriel, he was afraid. He had to be told again, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. It's okay. It's okay. Go, go, you know, bring your blood pressure down. You're okay. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been answered, as he said to Zechariah. Well, what was his prayer? Well, he says, Elizabeth will bear a son. Now, was that what he was praying for? Was he like, God, give me a son, as he's before the Lord's presence, offering incense? It may have been. But more likely, like every other priest in that in that day, and as we see later on, as in, in well, we'll see in a, in a couple weeks here, in Zechariah's uh, prophecy, I believe that he was praying for the the consecration, the the consolation, the the deliverance of Israel from the Romans' hands. That's what Israel had been praying for for years, even as we see like into Jesus's days into Jesus' ministry. They're desiring to be free from the Romans. They want to be their own people again. They want to be free. So that's probably more like more likely what he's praying. Lord, deliver Israel. Lord, deliver us. Give us salvation from, from the Romans, Lord Jesus. Or Lord, Lord God. He doesn't know the name of Jesus yet. But what does he say? What does the angel say? Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Wait, wait, wait. What? Say that again. I was just praying for the deliverance of Israel. Well, how is this an answer to that prayer? Well, he's going to deliver Israel through Jesus. And guess what? Your son is going to get pregnant with John. And John was the reason for Zechariah. A whole purpose for this reason, for this passage, is because it spoke about his son, John. And John's purpose was that he prepared the way for Jesus, who would be the salvation and deliverance of Israel. And not only Israel, but Gentiles. And not only Gentiles, but us in the 21st century today. Jesus is the purpose for this passage. All of this points to Jesus. Because remember, everyone is born to make much of Jesus, that is every single person's role in existence, to make much of Jesus. Can you imagine that conversation that, uh, that Zechariah would have with his wife? Hey, guess what, hon? 
<laughs> You're going to get pregnant. Can you imagine her reaction to that news? Uh, what? Probably the same as his. Let's get there. As he says, um, John's, listen to John. The, word, the, 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 the name John literally means God is gracious, answering that prayer of salvation and deliverance. God's mercy. It says, and, did I miss it? Oh, yeah. Later on, in verse uh, verse 78 and 79, this is, this is Zachariah's uh, prophecy. He says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And John, as it says, what does the angel say? I say, you and your name, and you will shall name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understandings of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. This, this, this lifestyle that he talks about in this first part is called the Nazarite vow. This is an ascetic uh, lifestyle indicated in Mark chapter one. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This was a this is like a simplistic upon simplistic lifestyle. This is like minimal, you know, like those, those minimalists that you see on, on, on TV. This is even more minimal than that. This is way more minimalist than any of our 21st century minimalism. You know, oh, I live in a, in a, in a flat in, in New York City and all I've got is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a mattress pad of bamboo and my arm to sleep on. And that's it. <laughs> We're talking like even more minimal than that. You know, sleeps outside. Uh, this, so this is this is from Numbers chapter six. This is Samson's lifestyle. Uh, this is from Judges. This is the lifestyle of, Sam, of Samuel. Uh, but it's interesting to contrast Jesus's uh, lifestyle with John's, in that you know he he came you know eating locusts and wild honey, and Jesus came eating and drinking. And so it's a different lifestyle. So it's not saying that one lifestyle is holier than not than another. It's not saying that this is a holier lifestyle than God's when he lived among us. And so this is, but this is specifically for him. And he says he will be filled with the Holy Spirits. And the last time we saw this for over 400 years was with the great prophets and King David himself. The Holy Spirit, whenever the Holy Spirit moved in those days, it was special. It was huge. It was impactful. They were the last ones to experience this, and this hadn't been experienced for over 400 years. So this was a monumental, monumental news. As we see the, the last paragraphs of the Old Testament 400 years before, uh, we see in Malachi chapter 3, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Look, I am, this is, uh, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great day of the Lord comes. This is actually my, Malachi 4, so I, I meant... I forgot to change that. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The day of the Lord. 
But it's amazing what he uses as an illustration of what it means to bring bring this day of the Lord. What does he say? He's going to bring the fathers back. He's going to bring the fathers back. That is our is honestly one of, if not the biggest problem in our culture today in America. Fatherlessness. Fathers being absent or being present, but emotionally and relationally absent, disconnected from their kids. Well, what does God say? He will bring the fathers back. He'll bring them back to be fathers. If you had a great father, be thankful. If you are a great a good father, be thankful. And be grateful that God is giving you that position in the lives of your of your kids. And this is one of the, the beauties of the church. This is why we, we're talking about shifting everyday relationships into authentic community to live God's adventure fully alive. Is so that we can be there for one another. There, there is such a relational aspect to our faith that cannot be masked and cannot be experienced in this. It has to be experienced in the, the groups, the smaller groups, our ad groups as we talk about, and those one-on-one -on -one close relationships. It has to be experienced on a deeper, smaller level. That's why we like to say you know, we, we're trying to grow relationships small to bring the fathers back. And even if it's not bringing their actual father back, being a father to one another, loving each other in a way that's transformative, that changes and, and makes us better, that grows us and matures us in our life and our faith. This is God's call to us as the church. This is why the church, when, when in the Roman Empire, when they were taking babies that had just been born and putting them on an altar to die of exposure, the Christian church was coming around them, rescuing these babies and raising them in the church. They were giving a father and a mother to the fatherless. Because that's what we see is the most powerful expression of God is father. That's why he called himself father, our father who's in heaven. As my father sent me, so I send you. Believe in my father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus is all about the father. If you look in the book of John, he's all about the father and helping restore a sense of fatherhood to his people because he knows that this is where the leadership and the power and the joy comes is when God is known as father and when he's, and he's experienced as a father in the church. This is what God's kingdom looks like. Family reconciliation, bringing families back together, bringing the people back to God, as he says in, in, in Luke. This is a time of spiritual renewal. This is a new spiritual era in the life of God's people. And every 500 years or so, there's, there's a new awakening that's happened. Every 500 years, there seems to be a, a ginormous explosion of revival and renewal. Every thousand years, yeah, a thousand BC, you had King David. At about five five hundred BC, you had the exile and the restoration. And then at zero, you got Jesus. At five hundred years, you've got the 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 
the freedom of the church and becoming uh, when Constantine took away the persecution against the church in the fourth century. And then in 1000 AD, you saw the, the, the great schism between the church, the Greeks, and the, and the Romans. And then you saw the Reformation in 1500. And now here we are, 500 years later. Can you feel the anticipation? Can you feel that God wants to do a spiritual renewal in the life of his people, in the life of, our, of the people that we live amongst? A sense of renewal and revival. I don't usually like to word, use the word revival because it's not the Bible, but in this sense of renewal where the Spirit is poured out upon people through his church, through us, his people, preaching the good news of salvation, preaching the good news of restoration, the good news of, what does it say? Great joy that will be for all the people. And so we're sitting right here in that 500-year mark. And so we pray for God to bring that spiritual renewal. And Zechariah asked the angel, in the face of this, this great spiritual renewal, this, this great promise that the angel is giving to him, Zechariah looks at him and says, um, have you seen my wife? She old. She's like 50. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. And he's, he's like, how can this be? How can I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife, she's old too. How can I know this? You've got to be joking. Really? And I wonder if it's rolling around in his head is, is reminding him, going back to, oh, yeah, Abraham. Oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hannah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember Samuel. Yeah, Samson. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what does he say? I am Gabriel. I'm not just any little you know wanderer that just kind of wandered in here. I am Gabriel. What does he say? Who stands in the presence of God? This is not just any experience with any old angel. This is a divine appointment. And what does he say? What does he say to, to Zechariah? Now listen. <laughs> listen up, dude. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Well, Zechariah got the sign he was asking for. How will I know this? He got the sign he was looking for. Careful what you wish for as they say, right? Until John's birth. But then he praises the Lord, which we'll read in a, in a couple weeks here. But it's interesting to also note that he's probably also deaf as well. Because what it said, in, in, we'll, we'll read later in verse uh, 62, that they were making signs to him. Because if you if he could hear, they, could, they would just talk to him. But they were also making signs to him, so he was probably deaf and mute. It would make life very difficult, wouldn't it? Especially to have a conversation with your wife. He walks in the house, as it says, what does it say? Later on it says, uh, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Let's just continue on there. Uh, meanwhile, they were, they were amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. He's like, it doesn't take this long to do incense. What's going on? 
Did he fall asleep? Did he die? No. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized uh, that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. Uh, and he was making signs to them. He's like, can you imagine? This is the days before sign language. He's like, uh, eh, uh, hmm. angel, you know, spoke me. Trying to communicate this thing, but he was he, he remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. He stayed through the rest of the week. Um, but it'd be interesting, like I see, walking into the house, how did he communicate that to her? Mm -hmm. Or maybe he just looked at her. He knew what was coming. He went and he just lived his life with his wife. And then when she came preg became pregnant and, and went in and, and she was like, he just looked at her and smiled. He's like, mm-hmm, I know. If he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear, what was rolling around in his mind? The last words he heard about the prophecy of his son, about the great hope for God's people. And after these days, his wife conceived and kept herself in seclusion. And we don't really know why she went and kept herself in seclusion for five months. Maybe it was tradition that they you know, did that uh, for health reasons. And, and she said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Because like I said, barrenness was looked down upon as though her ancestors or, or something had sinned. Like, you know, like the Pharisees were accusing the man born blind in John chapter 8. Well, this, this man or his parents sinned. Who's, who sinned, this man or his parents? They didn't know him. The reason she was barren was to give glory to God. The reason she was born and the reason this child will be born will be for the glory of God. You can almost sense this shadow over their household because of her barrenness. Even though they were devout and they enjoyed one another, they enjoyed their fellowship and they enjoyed the relationship with each other and with God, there's still the, the, the missing pitter-patter of little feet, little Zacharias, little Elizabeths running around the house. So it was almost like this shadow. But it's interesting to even notice, notice their name. Zachariah means the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth means the Lord is faithful to his oath. The Lord will fulfill what he promised. But going back to verse, even verse 14, what does he say? There will be great joy and delight. What? For you. Yes, this child will be born and raised and he will glorify God. And he will prepare the way for the Messiah. But in the meantime, guess what? You get to, you get to raise him. You get to enjoy him. You get to hold him and cuddle with him. Nothing better than your kids running in, in the morning and jumping up into your lap and cuddling with you. It's one of the greatest shows that I have as a dad. Hearing that, Daddy! I say, Daddy! Booger! So to answer the question, is God still at work? Did, how did God answer those, that question for them? Yes, God is still at work, even when God's servant, Zechariah, acts poorly. Zechariah's doubting. He wanted a sign. He got it. But here's the thing, guys. If we don't believe God's words, 
we shut himself out. We, we shut ourselves off from him. We shut him out and embrace his judgment. God doesn't force any who don't want him to love him. Now, you may have these same questions. You know, where is God? Look at all the garbage around us. Look at how evil the world is. You know, is. Look at how God allows the, all these things to happen. Isn't God a terrible, mean God for letting this happen or that happen? Why in the world would God ever let fill-in-the-blank happen? Why would he ever allow the Tiger King to be a show on Netflix? Why would he ever allow the violence and the hatred going on all around us? Why would he allow a pandemic like this to happen? Well, Zachariah had been asked, and Elizabeth had been asking this. And for 400 years, they, they went silent until now. But here's the thing. It's not as though he has shut us out or, or turned against us. It's that our world, humanity itself has, as a whole, has turned against him. Herod wasn't God's fault. Herod was Herod's fault. Hitler was Hitler's fault. Stalin was Stalin's fault. It wasn't God's. The fault does not lie with God. God is not surprised by any of these, these questions that we are asking today. But our questions ultimately lead us back to him because he is the hope that we in a lost world are truly searching for. We can't find it in social media. We can't find it in this or in that. We can't find it in our political figures. We can't find it in our economy. We can't even find it in a vaccine, you guys. We have to find it in Christ and him alone. So what is this calling us to do? How is this calling us to respond? Well, first, be righteous. As They, without the Holy Spirit, at the time, they were righteous. They were devout. They loved the Lord. They devoted themselves to him. So you also devote yourselves to God. Devote your lives, everything that you do in your families, in your households, in your friends, in your family, in your, in your work environments. Everything in your life, be devoted to God. Live the holy lives that you can now because of the Holy Spirit in the midst of this evil generation. Give yourself grace. Man, give yourself grace. God has so much grace for you that he loved you so much that he died on the cross for all of your sins and rose to give you hope of the, of the resurrection in his Holy Spirit. Give yourself some of that grace. We're not going to live this life exactly the way that will be will benefit us. That's why we're growing and why we're maturing. We're asking God's direction for our lives because we desire to live lives that are joy-filled. We desire to live lives that are grace-filled and grow. Life is not about asceticism. It's not about the laws. It's not about the do's and the don'ts and measuring up to a certain standard. It's about faithfulness to God through devotion. Be engaged in the worship of God like those outside the temple. People's lives need to be salvaged. Believe and devote your life to Christ. Be baptized. 
If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized, this is the call that God is saying to you. Devote your lives to God and be baptized. Experience this joy. Experience this Holy Spirit. Experience life with Christ, life with God. And join God's people. But realize, we, are, we as, as the church, we are completely and utterly ineffective and incapable in any way of affecting any sort of gospel change in our culture. But here's the hope. And here's why we do it. Because God is the one who does it. And so we are the ones that are working, that, you know, he is the one that is working through us to affect that change in the world. And be used. Ask yourself this important question. What is my calling and my life's purpose? What is this all about, God? What do you have me on this earth to do? Am I pursuing it or am I just working a job? Am I just trying to get through life and enjoy it as much as possible? Or am I asking God the question every day, no matter what stage you're in? Could be a kid to a teenager to an adult to an older adult. Doesn't matter. Ask yourself this question. Am I pursuing your life's call for my life, God? How does my life and the story it tells point to Jesus? Because as, as all these events that we're reading about were leading up to the birth of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so our lives also point to the final coming and victorious coming of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, his return, his judgment, and his kingdom of eternal life in joy and glory. That is the purpose of all of our lives. I love this account of Zachariah because it wasn't about how awesome Zachariah was or about his great faith. Because remember, even in the presence of an archangel that scared the crap out of him, he doubted. That gives me great hope. That as I struggle to sometimes to have faith and to know which direction God wants for, for my life and for our lives as a church, I know that God is still at work. God is still faithful. And God wants to, to glorify himself and bring hope to us. God wants to use each one of our lives to make much of Jesus. Because each person, everyone, is born to make much of Jesus. You just have to ask, ask prayerfully, how? God, as we come together this morning, I pray that this would be our prayer here this morning. That you would show us our purpose. Show us the way that you have called us. As you called John and Jesus and all these people throughout history, throughout all the scripture, to glorify and honor your name. Show each one of us, Lord Jesus, your plan for us. Your purpose for our lives. So that we too may glorify you. May, we may make much of Jesus Christ. 
But God, I pray your Holy Spirit right now would be speaking to our hearts, speaking to us in a powerful way to reveal to us your hope and your joy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.